joining us today. As you'd be aware, this is the WAM Global Interim Results Webinar. Um, this is your company. Now, we're presenting to you um, as you all own the company as shareholders and, and we're, you know, we're at your service. Look, thank you very much for sending a lot of... There's been a lot of really good questions that have been sent in uh, and we'll cover them. Um, you know, we've, we've got the, you know, the A team uh, that manage the money at WAM Global. That's led by lead portfolio manager Katrina Burns. Um, Katrina's been, uh, you know, went to live in New York a little over six months ago. Um, and, you know, we just think it makes a lot of sense to have someone in the Northern Hemisphere um, managing a global uh, pool of capital uh, with also, you know, high-quality resources in Australia. In, in Australia, um, you know, Katrina's backed up with portfolio manager Nick Healy and also equity analyst, you know, William Liu. Um, and, and they will all, um, you know, present to you um, you know, during this presentation. And then um, we'll, we'll open up for questions. As I said, a lot of people are sending questions and thank you very much. You know, we really appreciate all your questions, comments or suggestions because, as I mentioned, this is your company. Uh, and and um, our senior corporate affairs advisor, you know, Camilla Cox, she will moderate the questions um, after the presentation. As I said at the start, this is to talk about the six-month um, result for the period to December uh, last year. Now, um, yeah, December, you know, that's 2021. Now, you know, as you'd be aware with that result, it's all it's been announced uh, and we'll also be giving you, a, a, you know, a look into the future or, you know, what Katrina, uh, Nick and William C um, uh, will develop in the equity markets globally over the next you know, six to 12 months. In terms of the results that we, you know, for the period to December, yeah, it was pleasing to see, uh, it was a tough market in terms of performance. Um, you know, the, the portfolio uh, increased 5.8% and a half, and that's, um, you know, for the year, it was actually up 19.7, you know, a solid result, um, but, but in, a, in a, you know, a tough, um, in a tough market. The, over that period, about 5% was held in cash, and that obviously that figure moves from time to time depending on the opportunities. In terms of, you know, on the pleasing side, um, it's great the, the profit reserve that's been built up over time. There's a fraction under 40 cents in the profit reserve. That's 39 cents. And that allowed, um, the, you know, that allowed the board to decide to increase the dividend by 10%. Um, in the you know, six-month period to five and a half cents for the six months. So you'd assume you know, an, another five and a half cents in the second half, so 11 cents for the full year. And that's, I mean, that is an excellent result um, in terms of you know, profits that have been made over time to allow you know, the board of directors to you know, give that back to shareholders over time. Uh, and that gives you a fully frank yield um, on the current share price of about 4.8%. Now, over the you know, over the last period, um, there were some exciting news in terms of WAM Global you know, merging with you know, Templeton Global. Now, you know, that has um, you know, that has significantly increased the size of WAM Global. And now, uh, as a listed investment company, WAM Global is one of the biggest you know, listed and global listed investment companies. And there will be benefits. Benefits will flow from that over time. Um, you know, it was a, it was a you know, what we did see 
Um, and maybe we, this will come up in Q&A. But what we did see is we saw an, a number of you know, sort of hedge fundy people uh, buying Templeton Global because it looked cheap uh, for the arbitrage opportunity. Uh, and uh, un unfortunately, you know, we've just got to work through that. And that'll, you know, we did have, Wham Global was trading at NTA, if not a slight premium, um, you know, go back uh, earlier last year, and now it's trading at a 13% discount. And to me, that's, that's exceptional value. You know, you've got that fully frank yield plus the discount. You know, that discount will be removed over time. You know, with Wham Global's been at discounts before and it's been at premiums before. And it'll just take a little bit of time to work through the overhang of, you know, some of the, you know, some of the hedge funds that bought in, you know, for just arbitraging the opportunity um, of, the, of the merger with Templeton Global. In terms of the long-term benefits of Wham Global being larger, they are significant. You look at the, you know, the large players in the LIC space, you know, there's, there's a significant benefit for being, you know, for size in the LIC space. You know, AFIC, um, which is, you know, the largest listed investment company in Australia, you know, that's trading at a, about a 14% premium. You've got Argo, the second largest, trading at a 7.5% premium. And Wham Capital, the third largest, you know, trading at a 20-odd percent premium. So, you know, there's, there's a big bias for size. And why is that bias for size? It's really, it's the financial, um, you know, the financial planning community. When they say they want to allocate assets to a certain strategy, they, they don't want to buy, you know, $1,000 or $2,000 worth of shares. They want, they want you know, sizable uh, amounts and good liquidity. And so um, once Wham Global works through this current period, as I said, where the arbitrages are sort of, or the unnatural owners of Temple and Global are departing, you know, then I, I think you'll see a significant benefit um, of, Wham, uh, of that deal and Wham Global being a larger player. Um, so that's just a little bit of the, the background. Um, what I, why don't I, I'll pass over to Katrina. Um, you know, well, first of all, I just want to thank Katrina and her team for doing all the hard work. You know, these are the guys who are inv investing the money. Um, Katrina, from you know, from downtown New York, can you give us a um, an update of the portfolio and the performance? Let's look at the period to December first. December Great. last year. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Jeff, and and as you said, thanks to everyone uh, who's joined joined the call today. Uh, so yeah, looking at that six month period from first of July twenty twenty one through to thirty one December, uh, as as Jeff said. Uh, the WAM Global Fund rose 5.8%, which, you know, was solid but certainly lagged the Miski World Index by about 5.5%. Now, markets through this period have moved around significantly uh, as we grappled with strong demand and that significant liquidity that had been pumped in uh, to the CIS financial systems globally by both governments uh, and central banks. But that was met with supply chain issues and rising inflation and then that surge of Omicron variant of coronavirus uh, through December. With reference to the fund specifically, uh, the performance um, has been hurt by a few factors. Um, firstly, our tendency to hold small stocks, um, as, and which you know, have very much vastly underperformed um, the large cap stocks um, during this period, um, which, and which make up that Miski World Index. 
um, and also by our sec some of our sector exposures and, and then some stock-specific pressures. So on that first point, we've seen small and, and, and mid-cap stocks, as I said, underperform. Um, the MISCI small caps index is about 7% behind MISCI world uh, and mid-caps are about 4% behind. Uh, and we've got about 60% of the fund uh, invested in, in small and mid-cap stocks. What we are seeing, though, um, given that, that sell-off, is, is that the valuations for small caps relative to large caps are, are at nearly 20-year lows um, versus that historic premium um, that they've traded at. Uh, on the second factor, sector-wise, we've seen banks, energy, resources do particularly well. Uh, and these really are sectors that we tend to underweight and don't focus on, um, given we love businesses that can really compound earnings through a cycle. Um, and we don't, you know, we don't, we don't see the, those businesses as generally fitting our investment process. Um, then lastly, we, as I said, we've had some particular stocks that have dragged on, on performance, namely from the payment sector, China and, and e-commerce. And we'll dig um, into, into detail, a bit more detail uh, on those, I think, a little, a little later. Yeah, thank you very much um, for that, Katrina. That's sort of looking back, and I know this is... You know, the, the webinar is for that period. I mean, if, if in terms of the outlook for global equities moving forward, you know, do you want to just sort of touch on that? Yes, absolutely. So first, why don't I... Up, so that was that period, as you said, from uh, up to 31 December. Since then, uh, up until, you know, now at 1st of, 1st of March, well, here in the US, um, we um, have seen equity markets be... Uh, you know, under significant pressure. It's been a very tough period. We've seen tech stocks, for example, sell off particularly aggressively. Uh, and I saw some stats the other day that more than 40% um, of the stocks in the, in the NASDAQ, NASDAQ index, which is that tech index in the US, um, more than 40% are off uh, over 50% and 25% are off more than 70% from their 52-week highs. Um, so it has been, you know, very volatile and, and particular sectors have, have been under sig significant pressure. For context, though, I'd say that, you know, if we think back to that um, the beginning of 2020, which was, you know, before the pandemic hit, the MISCU World Index is actually up 28%. So we've had a global pandemic uh, in the middle, you know, in that period. And yet we sit on the other side um, with global equities 28% higher. Um, and, and I guess our, our outlook um, going into the you know 2022 year was that it would not be at all unsurprising to see lower returns as those emergency policy settings um, were withdrawn from from global uh, economies. But what's made markets so volatile um, is firstly that, that that is just around that stickiness of inflation. So. In the US, um, where I am, for example, we've seen inflation prints above 77%, which is levels not seen in 40 years. Uh, and that's really meant that the Federal Reserve has had to change the rhetoric um, around how quickly they would raise rates. And, and that's riled markets. So we've gone from a situation where we're where markets were expecting one to three rate increases uh, in, in 2022 to a situation now where, where they're pricing in seven. Um, so this change has had significant implications for, for the prices uh, that people are willing to pay for stocks. 
um, because, you know, as we feed higher discount rates through valuations, um, we've seen that that derate uh, in stocks more generally, and we've seen a huge rotation um, in the in the kind of stocks that people want to hold. Um, so those growth stocks have come under pressure, particularly in the tech space, uh, as I referred to later, uh, referred to earlier. Now, the second factor that's really added to the volatility, sadly, more recently, is the is the Russia Ukraine situation. So, you know, as I said, it's, it's incredibly um, sad and we, we, you know, feel for the Ukrainian people. Um, and we've seen Europe in particular suffering uh, from concerns around the potential for energy supply to be cut off uh, and, and the potential flow-on effects um, to, to economic growth. If I, if I think through then um, the outlook um, for, for equity markets, we think that the debate will really continue to centre uh, around how quickly the Fed will raise rates. Um, now, the positive on this front is just, as I said, how much tightening has actually already been priced into forward curves. So, you know, that that uh, uh, belief in, you know, that uh, indication that the markets are, think seven rate rises, it, you know, it is significant and, and actually may end up having to be revised down given given the, the increase in... Uh, concerns around growth around Ukraine, uh, et cetera. Um, the other positive is just that the household and corporate balance sheets right now are, very, are in very strong shape with excess savings um, in places like the US, Europe, Japan, a higher level of equity in homes and then high levels of employment. On the negative, we, have that, we do have that sticky inflation um, that is eating into some of people's savings uh, and, and, and rates are rising off those very low levels. Now, a number of the inflation pressures, um, we think as we go through the back half of this year, um, will we'll start to abate. So some of the freight um, costs are already starting to come off and some of the bottlenecks are, are starting to, to relieve. Um, and, and, and look, we hope that, you know, we will eventually move past this, this pandemic um, and, and that the, those supply chains can open up, will, which will help in inflation. So overall, we actually uh, do think that the recent sell-off uh, in markets is really presenting actually some, some interesting ideas and opportunities. Um, as I mentioned at the start, those small caps have been aggressively sold off, and this has been really indiscriminate regardless of whether their earnings fundamentals um, have actually remained very strong. Um, so, you know, we're being opportunistic there. Even in that large cap end of the market, we think that some of the highest quality companies are being really unduly punished, um, you know, just because they operate in the tech space, regardless of whether they actually have valuations that, that actually look compelling. Um, so, as I said, we are being opp opportunistic but we certainly like do expect ongoing volatility in, in equity markets. It's not an easy um, environment right now as, you know, companies are grappling with inflation, interest rate rises, Ukrainian crisis. So it's certainly not easy, but we are seeing that there is an increasing pool uh, of new investment opportunities. Um, and, we, and we do like the setup ahead for the companies that we, that we have in the portfolio. And, and Katrina, just on that, I, I know a little while ago you sent, you know, you flipped over a chart of, you know, just showing you how cheap, I think the, you know, the small caps are, and what is it? That, what was it? The cheapest in was it twenty three years or? Yeah, twenty seven years. Twenty seven years, and 
we all know, like we all know, the markets are cyclical, uh, and, and and like it's quite bizarre because you 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 knew, normally you know, you think at the sort of the the tail of a bull market that small caps are the most expensive <laughs> they'll be. Yeah, is that what is that telling us something different, or is it just just telling us that there's exceptional opportunity there? Well, I think you're right, and it, it, like it's been. A, I guess it's it, you've you've had just had one thing after after another, and that period of underperformance has really sort of been that 18, 19, 20, 21, like this period where you know you've had first you had trade wars, you know you had Trump with the tweeting and every you know you what you were waking up each night not knowing what was going to be next, um, you know then you you had a Fed you had a Fed pivot, you had trade wars, uh, and then you've had coronavirus and then you've had all this supply chain disruption so I just think there's been a number of factors um, that people have kind of just flocked to large caps for liquidity for certainty um, but as you say that you know typically at you know at this point you'd, you'd expect the small caps to be trading extremely well um, but I think that you know that is creating a lot of opportunities yeah and look, look thanks and in terms of with opportunities why don't we drill in a little bit, and uh, Nick, why don't you take us through you know, some of the stocks that you're, you know, that, that you guys as a team are, are looking at, you know, and are excited about at the moment. Yeah, absolutely, Jeff. I'm very happy to, um, and thank you everybody for tuning in today. We we always appreciate your time. So I, uh, I'd like to run through two companies. I'll pass over to Will after that for a few more um, companies that we hold in the fund. The first one I'd love to talk about is Arthur Gallagher. Um, now, Arthur Gallagher are the global leading mid-market insurance broker. And we've invested in the insurance brokerage space in the past through Aon. And in general, we really do like this space. We think the recent Aon Willis uh, antitrust investigation actually proves to highlight uh, how good this industry is. There's really only a few competitors, and that's a natural outcome of the fact that these firms, these brokerage firms, connect many companies looking for insurance with many providers of insurance. And by aggregating up demand, they're able to achieve cost savings uh, and pass that through to customers and kind of create a win-win. So it's a sustainable oligopolistic industry, and we just really think it's, it's quite a favorable space. Now, why Gallagher in particular? So as I said, they're the leading company in the mid-market. Now, what this means is they don't compete with Marsh and Aon as much as they compete with smaller regional brokers. And for years, they've just taken market share off these firms. And the reasons are pretty clear. They have the scale to invest in technology and data and analytics, um, whereas their competitors often don't. So looking forward, we see a situation where they can continue to take market share. Having engaged with management, we see them as extremely high quality. They have a history of execution. They speak really clearly. Um, they're very optimistic on the future at this point. And the CEO himself holds over $100 million of stock. So we see a good alignment of interests. On the catalyst front, we see a clear catalyst here in that much like everything Gallagher do, they like to be conservative. We think, so they've understated their earnings effectively. If you look at their cash flows, um, they're about 30 to 40% understated. And management have said to be more apples to apples, they're gonna move to an industry standard approach this year. And we don't think the market is pricing this in properly because 
analysts and brokers can't make the change until man management confirm that they're going to do that change. So we see that as a clear catalyst over the coming months. So Gallagher is a new position for us, but we see it as a very high quality one. It's in the top 20 and it's a company we are quite positive on today. Um, just briefly, I'll run you through uh, another one, which is TransUnion. Now, I've talked in the past about TransUnion. It, it quite similar to the insurance brokerage space. It operates, it's a global credit bureau, and it operates in an industry which just naturally leads to smaller number of players, um, quite oligopolistic and rational. For their reason, it's that they aggregate up the data of millions and millions of customers. So you need scale. So it is very hard to enter that business on a global basis. Uh, so for TransUnion, they reported their fourth quarter results last week. We thought they were really solid, including the 2022 guidance. However, the market right now really doesn't like complexity. And there was a bit of complexity here with TransUnion selling off some healthcare assets and acquiring some data and fraud assets. So there was a bit to work through, um, but the market didn't like that. And so it sold it off quite a bit. We love this opportunity because it allows us to act opportunistically and we've added to TransUnion on the back of that result. Big picture, we continue to see TransUnion as well positioned as data is increasingly used in financial services um, across the world. So I'll pass over to Will for a couple more stocks that we really like in the fund. Sure. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Nick. Um, stocks, a couple of stocks I want to talk to you about today. First one is Booking Holdings. So Booking Holdings is an online travel agency listed in the US. Um, we're constructive on Booking Holdings because we believe there is significant pent-up global demand for leisure travel. Um, that's evidenced at its latest result where Booking highlighted that February room nights booked were ahead of 2019 levels and they highlighted encouraging outlook for North America and Western Europe in terms of summer period bookings. We also believe that booking is poised to gain market share and emerge from the pandemic in a stronger position than it was coming in. If you look at the, if you look at the business, um, you've seen this secular shift towards online travel agencies away from brick and mortar agencies. Further, we believe the hospitality venues and hotels are going to be increasingly reliant on booking services to try and improve their occupancy rates. Now, another point I'd like to point out is that I think the market's underappreciating the connected trip initiative that booking is undertaking. So booking is not only offering accommodation services, they're expanding into payments, car rentals, flights, um, and we think they're going to get an increasing share of consumer wallets. And we think this is going to be a positive tail going forward, which the market is not recognizing. The path to recovery is not linear for travel. Um, there's bumps and turns along the way. And we can see that there's some tensions now with Ukraine and Russia. Um, we'd highlight that booking noted on its core that they have a low single digit exposure to that space. We believe the management team is very well regarded. Um, they also have a net cash balance sheet. And we believe the earnings um, outlook is very constructive from here. So. It remains a key position in our portfolio and we, we continue to be positive on, on the outlook. The other name I want to talk to you about today is Intercontinental, Intercontinental Exchange and they're one of the leading operators of regulated marketplaces and clearing services. So the reason why we like Intercontinental Exchange, firstly, it's because they have great earnings predictability. 
they have the leading market positions in the markets in the markets they operate, which gives them economies of scale and pricing power. Further, more than 50% of their business are data and analytics add-ons, and we think they're really embedded into customer workflows, and there's very little substitute products. The other reason we like Intercontinental Exchange ICE is because they have some counter-cyclical qualities. So their revenues are tied to trading volumes, and we tend to see trading volumes increase in falling markets. We're facing clearly a quite uncertain macroeconomic outlook with rising rates, um, oil prices above $100, and we think ICE is well poised to benefit from that with the increase in hedging activity. The business in mortgage technology is also underappreciated by the market. So they have the leading platform in digitizing the mortgage process, which is still in its infancy stages. The majority of the US is still using analog services, and we think that provides a long runway of growth in the future. ICE is extremely well run. The management team is very well regarded. Um, we think there's clear earnings resiliency and it's um, a great stock for the portfolio. It remains a core position within our portfolio. So that's the two names I want to run through, Booking and Intercontinental Exchange. And I might um, pass to train, Katrina. Sure. So the the um, other thing we thought we you know it'd be worth doing is certainly to to give you some insights um, just in terms of those detractors to to portfolio performance and give you a little a little bit more context um, around those. Uh, so in terms of the the three areas that have really detracted um, in in the period um, for the half year and and but yet which which we still hold um, are the in the payment space. Uh, and then also in uh, uh, Tencent and Alibaba in China, and then in the in the e-commerce space. So why don't I'll kick off and discuss payments, and then I I'll hand to you, Will, to do um, cover off those China names and Nick e-commerce. Um, so firstly, on, on the payment sector. So what um, what we saw in the period was that there was enormous bifurcation um, in the payment sector between stocks that are really have been seen as disruptors like Adyen, uh, Square, Stripe, uh, and those that are seen as potentially disrupt, disruptable. Um, and, and names we hold that fell into that category um, are Visa, Fiserv and FIS, um, and PayPal, which we didn't own, you know, got caught up in that as well. Now we think this the the sell off uh, in these stocks is is unjustified uh, and continue to to like the names um, longer term. What was interesting was that what hasn't mattered is is that the earnings power of these businesses has actually been very solid. Um, there's just been a significant derating um, to the point that you know in the example of of Fiserv, which we own. Um, it's actually now trading um, at a 13 times multiple, but will grow earnings over 20%. Uh, we think there's significant upside and that actually they own Clover, uh, which is the largest point of sale processing platform, um, which is actually a disruptor in itself. Um, now, we owned both Fiserv uh, and FIS going into the results, but we actually switched out of FIS into Fiserv um, because they were trading on the same multiples, um, but we thought the quality was higher at Fiserv. What we've seen is Activist Investor Value Act actually invest in August last year $1.2 billion in building a position um, in Fiserv. They've got board representation. So we think they'll be also important in terms of realising value going forward. Um, in the case of Visa, we've also, we also added in the sell-off in February. They, they've delivered a very strong result. Uh, and we think they're, they're very well placed um, to, to benefit from, from the return of cross-border travel. 
Um, so, yes, as I said, the payment sector certainly did detract from performance, but, but we think the setup looking forward um, is compelling. Why don't I hand over now to, to Will and to run through Alibaba and, and Tencent? Yes, um, thanks, thanks, Train. So China has been a difficult market for investors more, more generally. Um, we do own Alibaba and Tencent. Together, they make up 1.7% of the portfolio today. So despite reducing our position, we took down our positions, Alibaba and Tencent, in the wake of the regulatory activity, they've still been a detractor to overall portfolio performance. The key concerns for China are really driven by two key factors. The first one is the heavy and sweeping regulatory activity. And the second one being China's zero tolerance on COVID. Um, that's led to weakness in consumption across consumers and small and medium businesses more generally. On the regulatory pace, it's very difficult to get clarity. Um, we would make a couple of observations from our end, and it looks like the policies are aligned to China's common prosperity initiatives tackling social issues such as income inequality, the rising cost of living and declining birth rates, which they're experiencing. The government is in a difficult position where they're trying to balance the incentives for profit, incentives for hard work, which is critical for productivity within the economy, um, with the appropriate redistribution of wealth in a more equal way. To us, China is not uninvestable currently. China is the number two economy in the world and a significant contributor to global innovation. If we look at Tencent and Alibaba, they've taken actions to comply with the new regulations. While this has come at a hit shorter term to their profit and margins, we believe the outlook, which has been disappointing, we believe the outlook is more constructive from here. As I said, we're taking a very cautious approach. Alibaba and Tencent make up 1.7% of the portfolio today. We have seen China ease monetary policy, um, which will hopefully stimulate credit growth and improve consumption. We've seen the earnings expectations lowered for both of these companies and valuations are now trading at distressed levels. So we think the risk reward is skewed to the upside from here, um, but we're taking a cautious approach. I might pass on to Nick. Yeah, thanks, Will. Um, so I'll run through the third area we're going to do a, a bit of a, a dive into just to give you some extra detail, and that's the e-commerce stocks. We invested into e-commerce in 2020 just with the view that it, there is a multi-year shift going on from bricks and mortar to online, and uh, COVID clearly accelerated that. So we held names including Boohoo, West Wing, Home24, Zooplus, and BHG. Now, although it worked in 2020, it didn't work in 2021 and so far in 2022. We did actively reduce some positions uh, given some of the things I'll mention. Um, however, nevertheless, it was a detractor as an area. I think the best way to illustrate this is just to go through Boohoo as an example. So we invested into Boohoo in 2020 after engaging with management and forming the view that they were taking steps to improve some of the issues that had been highlighted in their supply chain. At the time we invested, it was uh, a profitable business. It had years of double-digit growth. So it wasn't a concept stock. It had proven execution at that point. Now, what really went wrong for Boohoo was they rely to a great extent on smooth supply chains around the world. And where we were specifically wrong was although we could clearly see that those were impacted by COVID, uh, we expected them to normalise in relatively short order, a year to two. And yet here we sit two years on and supply chains are still impacted by the COVID situation. 
So we still think that they will improve over time, but clearly the timing is not what we thought it would be. This impacted Boohoo in two ways. Their lead times extended, which impacted the customer value proposition, and the margins were hit with freight costs coming up, which impacted earnings. Now, they do have plans in place to, to solve this themselves through additional uh, distribution centres they're building. Um, alternatively, if supply chains ease, that will um, improve this situation. But as we've mentioned before, currently the market is extremely unwilling to look through periods of uncertainty or complexity, and it's taking these already lowered earnings and putting them on 16 times multiple, which for a business that can clearly grow double digit is uh, quite a pessimistic view. Now, we do have the view that the business isn't broken. Um, it will take longer to return back to normal trading patterns, but our view is that from here it should incrementally improve. And we do see a lot of upside from the current prices. But it's fair to note that there is a lot of uncertainty in supply chains. So the position today is sized quite modestly uh, below 1%, just to reflect the uncertainty inherent in the situation. Uh, so that's the e-commerce bucket. Um, I'm going to pass back to Jeff now. Uh, yes. Great. Look, thanks very much, Nick. And you know, you've done a very thorough um, sort of analysis of what you like and, and what's worked and what hasn't worked. And I know most times, you know, that, that we spend our time talking to the shareholders about what's worked. And I think it's great that you're, um, you know, you're showing both sides of the coin. Why don't I just quickly go back to um, Katrina, uh, just to, before we go to questions, because we want to spend a lot of time answering questions, um, just in terms of how the port, with this current volatility, how the portfolio is positioned now. Katrina, you just want to touch on that? Before we go to Q&A. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so what, I'll lead off on the portfolio positioning and then discuss what we've been doing more, more recently. So the fund holds 65% um, in US listed stocks, about 13% in Europe, 7% in the UK, 8% uh, in Asia with the majority of that in Japan and Australia. And, and the cash at the end of yesterday was sitting at around 7%. So the cash is up um, uh, from the end of last month as we've chosen to add a little liquidity um, given that uncertainty around Ukraine and, and just as we saw markets adjusting um, to higher rates being factored in. Um, we will draw that down as we find those, you know, those stock-specific opportunities that we think are, are just too compelling um, to, to not put, put money into. Um, from a sector pers perspective, we are well-diversified now, um, you know, as, as we've talked about um, in the past, we focus on finding undervalued growth names um, around the world. So generally, you'll expect us um, to be un underweight areas like banks, energy, REITs, utilities. Uh, we love finding great businesses that can continue to grow through any part of the economic cycle, which, you know, often does lead us to those small mid-cap stocks, which are generally earlier in their life, life cycle. Uh, and as I said, the, while this has been an area of under particular pressure, we do think those valuations um, of many of those companies are re very compelling um, and, and do pre present exciting prospective re returns. Um, Positioning-wise, with inflation remaining stubbornly high, we have, you know, we are focused on ensuring the companies um, that we have in the portfolio, you know, do have that pricing power, which really helps their ability to handle inflation uh, and those that, 
that are um, managing those supply chain disruptions um, that we continue to see. Now, in the main, we aren't adjusting um, the portfolio significantly overall, but we are adding where we see opportunity. And, and look, we will never call a bottom perfectly, but we're selectively adding to both the businesses that we hold in the portfolio already um, that we think have been unduly sold off. And we've added to positions in, in, in stocks that, that Nick and Will have talked to, talked to, like TransUnion and Booking. Um, and we are adding other high-quality businesses that we didn't own um, going into the sell-off, but which we think have very strong um, earnings power. So, you know, we've added um, small positions, started to, to add positions in, in businesses like Adobe and, and PayPal. Our focus, you know, going forward is, is just to continue to find businesses that we think offer compelling upside, but without excessive valuations or leverage and where we can identify um, those, cat those catalysts. Look, thank you very much, Katrina. Um, why don't we go to the question and answers now? Um, you know, obviously, a lot of questions have already been sent in and you know, continue sending questions in. So, Camilla, do you want to start taking us through those, please? Thanks, Jeff. Uh, Nick, we'll start with you. Katrina did touch on this, but perhaps if there's anything you'd like to add. Ross has asked, what impact do you see on global equities as a result of the war in Ukraine? And is there any exposure to Russian stocks? Yeah, thanks, Camilla, and thanks, Ross. Um, Katrina did touch on this, uh, but it is a topic that is incredibly at the front of the mind, both for markets and, and just in general. Um, and Katrina said at the outset, and we certainly all agree, that from a human perspective, um, our, our hope is for a peaceful resolution as quickly as possible. Uh, turning to WAM Global, so with regards to stocks that are Russian, Ukrainian or Eastern European, we don't hold any, so the exposure there is, is zero. Some of our holdings do have indirect look-through exposure to um, the Eastern European region and to Russia. Um, however, having engaged with these companies, we, we see this as a very modest exposure. Some examples to set the scene would be, um, so Icon, we, we recently uh, talked to, and Carrier as well, and both indicated that it was below 2%. Carrier said below 1%. Um, so these are kind of the, the orders of magnitude of the look-through exposure. So in terms of the WAM Global um, position with regards to the situation, we, we feel quite comfortable um, in a direct sense. Clearly, there are knock-on effects. So there's already obvious impacts of this. Um, this is clearly inflationary with regards to oil, gas, wheat, and a lot of other commodities. Um, it's driving a lot of uncertainty into the market. And then when you see uncertainty, you tend to see a lot of volatility. Uh, there's been some thoughts that given the uncertainty, this might take the edge off the monetary tightening cycle. Our view is this will be a challenge for the central banks just because they do face higher inflation. Um, although we agree probably at the margin, this does take the edge off monetary tightening. And the, the final thing that's already happened is just from a geopolitical perspective, you, you see relatively quick moves and changes in stance. I remember back in the middle of last decade, I, I was looking at the German defence budget and it had been a sore point for years and years and years that Germany underspent the NATO requirement of 2% of GDP. Um, already that's changed. So Germany have committed to hitting or exceeding that target. And these are kind of things that you two, three, four weeks ago you wouldn't have expected to see. So it's clearly a situation in flux. Um, 
But yeah, so the most important thing, I, I guess, is just to stress the fact that we have no direct exposure to the region. Um, thank you for the question. Thanks, Nick. Jeff, we'll turn to you now. Uh, Global recently merged with TGG. Are the team looking at any similar opportunities in the future? Um, the, 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 the answer is there's, there's nothing on the board's agenda. Um, we, we didn't expect that um, to occur. Uh, you know, it was the TGG board announced that they were reviewing their structure. Uh, and the interesting thing is there's another company that um, Wham Global isn't interested in, but another listed investment company, AEG, which a week or so ago said they were, um, you know, they were reviewing their structure. And, I mean, it's been reported in the press you now that we've, we've thrown a hat in the ring there, but that will be another, another entity. You know, it, it, it fits more logically with another entity. You know, TGG Pizzles Global Equities, it made sense you know, for the TGG shareholders, you know, to get exposure to WAM Global, which is global equities as well. Thanks, Jeff. Will, a question for you from Elizabeth. She's asked, what were some of the key takeaways from the recent earnings season? Yeah, sure. Thanks Thanks for the question, Elizabeth. So um, we're reaching the end of US reporting season. Um, more generally, the comment would be that it's been broadly positive. I think roughly three quarters of the companies in the S&P 500 have reported earnings above expectations. In terms of what we're seeing in our meetings with companies and um, through the results, I guess a couple of points to highlight would be firstly, demand is quite strong um, across the board. So sometimes even outstripping supply. We're seeing price increases being taken across the board um, without much change in consumer or customer behavior. On the margin front, it's a little bit more tricky. Um, as we've talked about earlier, there's some macro impacts with supp supply chains, cost inflation, and that's making it more of a difficult environment to navigate. For us, um, we tend to invest in high quality companies. They tend to have higher um, margins so they can manage those costs in a better way. And then operationally, they've been able to execute um, a lot better. Finally, guidance is becoming um, increasingly important. So companies which do have that predictability of earnings, they're getting rewarded, whereas companies which um, are less certain of their outlook, they're getting um, punished more by the market. I guess from our perspective, like we're seeing strength in terms of demand. We're seeing nuances in terms of managing the cost side of things. Um, we're keeping a close eye on our companies. We tend to invest in companies with high-quality management teams, um, businesses with good predictability of earnings and with in attractive industry dynamics. So um, reporting seasons generally being quite positive for us. Great. Thanks, Will. Jeff, a question for you from Bruce. He's asked, with a substantial increase in funds under management in the last 12 months, is there any thoughts from you on reducing management fees? Yeah, the, um, the, the simple answer is no, that's not the plan. The... The, I mean, as as we grow, then we actually you know, grow our skill and expertise. Um, I mean, one of the one of the you know, from a managing the money perspective, the logic for Katrina to position herself in the US obviously, you know, significantly more expensive um, than it was, but that was because, as Katrina said, sixty odd percent of the um, you know, companies are over there, and particularly with COVID, there was a degree of uncertainty. Um, yeah, I mean, we're we're still in the funds management 
world, like we're still pretty small um, in terms of we manage five and a half billion. Um, we've got you know, 14 going to you know, 15 investment professionals. Um, we're, say, the likes of a Magellan, I mean, they're managing, what, 80-odd billion with 35-odd professionals. Um, and, yeah, and, they, and I think their global fee is actually higher than ours. I think it's 1.35% and a performance fee. But, yeah, so there's no, no plans. Thanks, Jeff. And just sticking with you, we've got a question from John on WAM Global Options. He's asked, what was the purpose of the free options? Yeah, and the logic of the free option, effectively, it's a buy and write on behalf of all shareholders. So it's giving you another piece of paper that you can decide what you want to do with it. You know, you can actually, you know, you can sell it if you want. Um, you know, you can keep it and, and see how the underlying company performs. Uh, and if it, you know, if it's trading above the strike price, then you can exercise it. Um, it was what we thought it was the most equitable way of growing the business because you know, it, it doesn't put any pressure. It's like having a rights issue, but having a rights issue over a year and a half. So it's a, a really, it's a very gentle way of raising capital. And, and with a rights issue, you tend to raise the money and that puts a, you know, it puts a bit of pressure on the share price. Um, with an option issue, you know, then... You know, you, you, there's no guarantee you'll raise the money. You have to perform to raise that money. Um, so that was the logic of having it. Thanks, Jeff. Back to you, Nick. Um, this was briefly touched on. However, Jane's asked, is the technology sector interesting to the team, even given the recent sell-off? Yeah, thanks, James, for the question. I, I think Katrina did touch on that and um, did mention that we do find that there are some amazing companies that, as recently as six months ago, by sticking to our process, we found them very hard to get interested in. Um, but some of the falls have been quite spectacular. And we think at times like these, the market does tend to throw the good out with the bad. So I, I mean, just keeping it simple, we, we do see it as an opportunity rich environment. Um, and we are basically, that's how we spend our, our time is turning over stones and, and getting to know businesses and engaging with companies. Um, in the lookout for these really high-quality companies that we think are mispriced. Thanks, Nick. Over to you again, Jeff. This one's from Alan. He's asked, why doesn't WAM Global provide a daily NTA update? Yeah, the the, I mean, effectively, we provide a monthly NTA update. Um, I actually have seen no evidence that a daily NTA update sort of adds value to any anyone. The um, There's been a number of listed investment companies that do do daily NTA updates. I know, um, you know the Perpetual guys do their daily NTA update. Uh, it, it's tended to trade at a discount for most of its listed life. Um, so it doesn't necessarily get it to a premium. Uh, and I think one thing that sort of, that isn't, isn't positive about you know, giving the daily NTA update um, is the fact that you're really, you're encouraging short-termism. You know, what we tend to find is, you know, the, the goal, what, what we're attempting to do is getting people that like what we're doing and want to come along for the ride. And a good example of that is with WAM um, research. You know, for the first 
seven, broadly seven years of its life, it traded at a discount to NTA. And it took us a long time to, to effectively, you know, for the people that didn't want to be there to sell and go, and the people that wanted to go along for the ride to stay. Um, and you know, on a monthly basis, of course, we'd tell them how the NTA is going. And, um, but really, it was people that wanted to stay for the medium long term. And that's what Africa and Argo have, and that's what we ended up getting with WAM Research. And it took us the longest time of any listed investment company we've had to get it from trading at a discount to NTA, and, and that was seven years. But now, because we were so successful of getting that group of you know, people that wanted to be invested in that product, I think the other day was trading at above more than a 40% premium to NTA. Now, that's a bit extreme, but that's sort of what happens if you get a long-term shareholder base that are really happy with what you're doing. Now, there's always be buying and selling, but you know, our goal at WAM Global is not to get people that will you know, trade for a cent or two. You know, it's, to, and it's people that are taking a medium long-term view, like how we've invested, uh, and, and really have that, have that alignment. And, and that's how we'll get WAM Global to trade at a premium uh, of course, you know, being a large WAM Global shareholder, I'd love it to be trading at a 40% premium. <laughs> but, yeah, it, it, NTA, NTA initially and then a premium after that. Um, but well, we will get there. It'll just take time. Thanks, Jeff. We've got an interesting question from William for you on franking. He's asked, are franking credits only applied when investing in Australian stocks? And if so, how can WAM Global pay fully frank dividends? Yeah, how you get... Um, franking credits is obviously if you own shares in an Australian company um, and then it pays a fully frank dividend, you get franking credits that way. And the other way you get franking credits is is if you make a profit and then you pay tax. And so how WAM Global gets its franking credits is from profit it makes. Um, you know, so the fully frank dividends, it's when we've you know, bought a stock, it's gone up in value, we've sold it, we made a profit, we've paid 30% tax, then that gives us the franking to pay the fully frank dividends. Now, obviously, we don't get the free kick that Australian com investment um, companies get as getting fully frank dividends as well. So we only get it from the tax paid. Thanks, Jeff. Katrina, we'll go to you. Uh, this one's from Terry. He's asked, how are you exposed to foreign currencies? What are the main sources and what hedging is done? Oops, sorry about that. Um, yes, thanks, Terry, for the question. So in terms of um, the portfolio, we don't um, hedge um, the, the the currency exposure. Um, part of the, the basis for when we started um, uh, the fund, um, you know, we, we um, very much talked to our shareholders around, you know, what they wanted in terms of the fact that they had, you know, significant the majority of their assets in 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 Aussie dollar stocks and and Aussie dollars, um, and that they wanted diversification across across their portfolios. Um, so in that vein, we you know we, they obviously get the exposure to the companies that we invest in, and and then and then the FX exposure. Um, if I look at the the cash weighting, as I said, uh, as of you know yesterday. Um, it was you were we were sitting about seven percent cash, um, and that was that was made up of about four and a half percent U.S. dollars, one percent Jap um, Japanese yen, 
um, 1% euros uh, and then a small balance in, in um, pounds and, and Aussie dollars. Um, we tend to align um, the, the FX exposure to, to the benchmark so we're not taking big bets um, on currency, um, but, but the um, portfolio is unhedged. Thanks, Katrina. Nick, we'll go to you. This is a question from John. He's asked, are you looking at investing in the health sector? Yeah, thanks, John. Um, so we have talked about uh, health and wellness in the past as a thematic that we very much like and are invested behind. Um, some specific names are Avantor, Thermo Fisher and Icon, which 100% play on this theme. And we like the health and uh, wellness uh, area because it it has these really long demographic tailwinds behind it, which we think drive multiple years, many, many years of of above market, above GDP growth. At the same time, there are very interesting um, technological breakthroughs that are occurring in the space, which we think only increase the propensity for this area to grow. Uh, lastly, I'd say that a lot of areas are seeing shifting consumer spending patterns for example, away from goods and towards services. We think healthcare is rel relatively immune from this. Um, it will see elective uh, treatments come back as COVID wanes. Um, so it's not the kind of sector where we see short-term headwind issues. So on the, on the whole, very, uh, very positive on the healthcare sector. And yes, we are invested in that space. Great, thanks, Nick. Will, over to you. This one's from Oliver. He's asked if you can discuss if there are any opportunities that the WAM Global team are seeing in the IPO space in the US. Sure. Um, thanks for the question. So um, clearly IPO act activity was heightened towards the end of last year. We saw uh, markets rallying. We saw the strength in markets and available liquidity, and that led to a lot of companies coming to the market. Um, many of these IPOs have underperformed. Um, some of them extrapolated strength during COVID, like names such as Peloton, which which we don't own, and they were adva took, took advantage of markets at the time. Generally speaking, we didn't participate um, in any of the IPOs, and it was prudent, I think, in hindsight, that that we didn't. I guess we're still keeping a close eye on some of these companies. Um, if they do have the investment characteristics that we look for and trade at attractive valuations, that could be a hunting ground for us. But um, we haven't participated um, in, in the IPOs over the past year. Thanks, Will. Back to you, Nick. This one's from Sue, and she's asked, do you believe growth or value stocks will outperform in the current environment? Yeah, thanks, Sue. So I think it's a, it's a big debate topic in the market. Is, is growth going to win? Is value going to win? I mean, just as a, a big picture comment, I suppose these are very uh, rough buckets to use when thinking around about the world. Um, we tend to find that sometimes our stocks, although they are growth companies with, with, you know, with high quality, they can trade cheap enough to be considered value stocks. Um, and so we don't think the buckets are a perfectly applicable way to think about the future. Uh, we, we, and we very much go stock by stock in terms of how we actually invest. That being said, Will growth or value outperform? I, I mean, there's some pretty common themes that, that tend to emerge. Value tends to include a lot of the commodity and energy stocks. Um, so as long as those prices are moving upwards, value tends to outperform. At the same time, growth includes a lot of stocks with uh, earnings that don't start occurring until many years into the future um, that trade on very, very full multiples. 
So in a rising rate environment, those don't tend to be the best things to hold. So although it's not how we approach the world, I, I think probably the, um, the, the, the money, I, if I were to place a bet, would be more on value over the, um, the, the kind of six to 12 month window. Thanks, Nick. And Katrina, this one's for you. It's from Lewis. He's asked, does Wham Global have any exposure to oil? Thanks uh, for the question. Yeah, so um, in terms of oil companies more generally, and I guess this you know, can also be extended to, to resource companies, they're not generally the types of businesses that, that we tend to invest in. You know, we focus on finding those undervalued growth companies that can really grow strongly and compound earnings through cycles. Um, and what we see with both oil companies and, and resources uh, companies is, you know, the cycle is very much there. You're very dependent on a, you know, an, a, a commodity price that you can't control. Um, and, and so, yeah, we, that's not an area we tend, tend to focus on. Saying that, you know, we can opportunistically, you know, own these names. And, you know, when, when the oil price you know, was sold off significantly, we did have some small holdings in, in some, of the, some of the oil companies like Chevron and, and Exxon. Um, but we've, you know, more recently sold, sold those. Um, we do have some indirect exposure through, um, and this is traditionally how we, you, you know, would more play the, the thematic is around owning service providers. So like Nick's talking about in, in, in the healthcare spec sector, we love the picks and shovel companies that don't care which company wins. Um, and so Aplus, um, which is listed in Spain, would be an example of that. So they're a testing business. Um, they have an oil and oil and gas um, uh, business, both OPEX and CAPEX. The CAPEX business has obviously been hit dramatically as oil majors have, have turned off spend. Um, but that OPEX business is, is you know, we think has um, got growth and, and a positive outlook going forward because you still do have to maintain your, your facilities and so forth. Um, so that business has has exposure to to the oil and gas sector. I mean, Quanta Services, which we uh, also own, it, which is which is listed in the US, um, has exposure to oil and pa pa uh, gas pipeline um, uh, investment. Um, so there, we, we do have some indirect exposures, but um, in the main, you know, oil companies aren't aren't the type of um, businesses that that we really invest in. Great. Thanks, Katrina. Uh, Jeff, we'll just turn back to you now for any closing words. Look, thank you very much. And thank you for all the shareholders. And you know, if there are any questions that um, that we haven't covered, you know, we'll, um, we'll get back to you. Um, you know, as I mentioned, this is your company. We're reporting to you. Any uh, ideas or suggestions or questions, please uh, feed them into the group. Yeah, um, we are recording this, so it'll be up. You know, if you want to go back and look at anything, it'll be up on the website shortly. Um, uh, you know, always stay in touch. Um, you know, it's a a crazy world we're living in at the moment. You know, we thought you know, COVID, then there's wars, and then there's floods. You know, it's you know, obviously a lot of a lot of things going on. So you know, please stay safe. Um, what you'll know is you know, we're very passionate about what we do in terms of managing the money on your behalf, um, and, and it is a 24-hour job, and we'll continue to do that uh, to the best of our ability. Thank you very much.